Film Spotting SPU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Dear White People is a sharp and funny comedy about a group of African-American students as they navigate campus life and racial boundaries at a predominantly white college. It's available on demand starting today. In The Humbling, Al Pacino plays an over-the-hill stage actor who falls into a controversially invigorating relationship with a young and lustful lesbian. It's available on demand starting January 23rd, the same day it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And this week on the show, Allison and I will discuss The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness a documentary taking a rare look at Studio Ghibli, the legendary Japanese animation studio founded by Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata. And then we'll take a moment to fatalistically consider our own magnificent legacy in podcasting. And later in the episode, we'll be bringing you cue shots in which we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And given that we'll be talking about a documentary about Studio Ghibli, it seemed only natural that we focus on some other Ghibli films or other Miyazaki ones. And we were so looking forward to doing that. Yep. And it turns out that almost none of them are available to stream or rent right womp, now womp. in the U.S. And I could swear some were last I looked. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the only one we could find was actually The Castle of Cagliostro, which is an early an early Miyazaki film, mm. which is currently on Hulu if you want to check it out. It's not one that we'll be talking about this time because instead we're going to look at some other docs that, like The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, are portraits of great creators. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? Well, first up, I just want to say, consider this an IOU or a WIOU for that Miyazaki podcast. You know, it was out of our control. We wanted to do we it. We really I was, wanted to do I it, I was yes. really looking forward to it. I actually had a couple of discs from Netflix I should explain to listeners discs. They used to movies used to come on these discs. <laughs> you could physical send physical media. Netflix actually used to send. They still do send people these movies on these discs. They're called DVDs, sometimes Blu-rays. We'll talk <laughs> more about that later. But in any event, I had. I'm like I was ready, and then Allison's like, "Uh, we've got a problem." So <laughs> we maybe we should have looked up that before. We probably should have. Probably in yeah. retrospect, that was that was a mistake. But hopefully, they will come to streaming or rental at some point, and at that point, we will. We'll double back. We'll find a way to do that Miyazaki podcast, which yeah. we are definitely looking forward to doing. And in the meanwhile, why are they not rentable? It's, it's a great outrageous. question. I really don't know. Yeah. I also don't know why you're poo-pooing on our magnificent legacy in podcasting in this script you had me read. We do have a magnificent why, legacy. Why? I don't know why you put a sarcastic spin on that when I was totally serious. <laughs> you meant serious. it sincerely? Oh, I misread that situation. Actually, mm. it's, it's funny that you uh, had me say that because... Last weekend, I was hanging out with another excellent uh, podcaster, Matt Patches of the Fighting in the War Room podcast, yes. and we were actually waiting to watch a live version of another film podcast, The Flophouse, which had a live show in Brooklyn. That's another excellent podcast. And we were waiting to go in, and literally, we got into a very comical argument over who had been doing podcasting longer. <laughs> I was like, no, I've been doing it longer. No, I've been. It was like, I've been doing it four years. Well, I've been doing it five and a half years. Like, 
pretty sad when you're fighting over <laughs> your magnificent legacy in podcasting, as you as you said. But in any event, let's move on to opening break. There's actually some really exciting titles uh, that are going to be available this week, starting with this one. It's the single best movie I saw at Fantastic Fest last year, and easily, easily, Allison, the most warm-hearted and winning movie I've seen in the last, I don't know, five six years that involves a human toilet as a major plot point. <laughs> uh, the plot synopsis here from uh, Movies on Demand says, two women take their carnal desires to the extreme in this kinky, deliciously twisted tale of sex and butterflies, and I should say the name of the film, which I don't think I've mentioned yet, is The Duke of Burgundy. It's directed by Peter Strickland, and it will be available on demand starting on January 23rd. And this is sort of a I don't know if I'd call it a romantic comedy, although at times it is very funny. Sort of halfway between a very serious romance and a kind of a very uh, silly romantic comedy about a lesbian couple that's into BDSM. Uh, Peter Strickland, if the name sounds familiar, is the guy who directed Barbarian Sound Studio, or as my autocorrect continually wants to put it, Barbarian Sound Studio, <laughs> which is a sli- that's a different one. That's, that's one where Arnold Schwarzenegger remake, yeah. was recording his dialogue. You kill my mother, you kill my father, the people. And uh, Arnold, can we get that one again? And then all of a sudden it turns into a weird giallo film. That was a different movie. But he directed Barbarian Sound Studio. And honestly, that was a movie I was a little lukewarm on. I remember. This one I thought was just light years beyond it in almost every way. Have you seen it yet, Allison? I haven't. I have a screener and it's one that I've been looking forward to. Many people have gushed to me about this movie. Oh, it is so great. It definitely feels like the work of the same guy who did Barbarian Sound Studio. It has the same kind of tone, the same style, has a little bit of that weird, willful experimentation that was going on there where the film at one point just kind of breaks down into kind of a weird, surrealistic swirl of images. But this one I thought was just so much richer in terms of character and drama. And the relationship between this main couple is just so great. Where are you going? I thought I'd finished for the day. You finish when I say. There is nothing left to do. Oh, there's plenty left to do. You can start by rubbing my feet. I know it's mid-January as I'm saying this. We haven't even really finished with the best movies of 2014, so I'm getting way ahead of myself. But I I feel very confident, almost guaranteed, that the Duke of Burgundy will be on my top ten list for 2015. I think it's that good. I really think it's one of the best movies of the year. Even though the, the year is only three weeks old... I just fell in love with this movie instantly when I saw it. I thought it was magnificent. I can't wait to see it again. I encourage you to check it out. Do not check it out with your parents. For the love of God, whatever you do, watch this in the privacy of your own home, but do see it. I really encourage you to check it out. That's The Duke of Burgundy, and that will be available starting on January 23rd. Also available on January 23rd is a film that I'm uh, was also at Fantastic Fest, actually. I missed it, but heard good things about it. I'm looking forward to checking this one out. I think that the trailer just came out for it. I watched it. It looks promising. It's called Everly. This one's directed by Joe Lynch. And the description here is it's an action slash thriller centered on a woman who faces down assassins sent by her ex, a mob boss, while she is holed up in her apartment. And the woman is Salma Hayek. So you have Salma Hayek sort of with an arsenal just kicking butt. I think it all is set in this one apartment. Um, It's sort of a almost like a... (laughs) Uh, an adapted play except i don't believe it's based on a play and it involves a lot of machine guns so it's an intriguing sort of concept i love salma hayek i think that's a nice vehicle for her it's directed by joe lynch who did that film knights of bad astom that 
seemed to have a sort of a, a cult following. A cult following. Now, I don't know if it ever really got a full release. It seemed to it sort of... Got one of those, like, I think, VOD slash barely a theatrical. Yeah, it seemed to sort of uh, bubble beneath the surface for a long time. But uh, I've heard good things about that film as well, which I haven't seen yet. So I'm looking forward to checking that one out. That's Everly, and that'll be available on VOD starting on January 23rd. And finally, a film that I, I'm... Really, maybe the number one movie I'm most disappointed I missed last year. I never got the chance to see it. And then there were really, at least as far as I knew, there were no year-end screenings. So I couldn't see it before my top ten list. And I'm, I'm really bummed out about it. It was really one of the two or three top movies that I, I most regret not being able to see. And that's called Love is Strange, directed by Ira Sachs. That's available now on VOD. And I'm just going to read uh, just some words from this very fine film critic I found online and their description of it. It says, New York City has never looked as bright and charming, nor has it felt as briskly indif- indifferent as it does in Sax's wistful movie about an aging gay p- couple played by John Lithgow and Alfred Molina, who are wonderful together, whose pleasant urban lives fall apart after they finally get married. And the person who wrote those words, Allison... Was me? That was you. That yes. was you included it in your. I don't think it was your top ten. It was your top fourteen. Yes, yes, it was a top fourteen. Top fourteen. You love an odd numbered list at BuzzFeed. <laughs> they they always do. But if you want to find the rest of Allison's list, you can find it there. But yeah, one of your favorite films of the year. It was. So people should absolutely check that one out. I will be checking it out as soon as I can. I'm I'm still dying to catch up with it. Uh, that's Love Is Strange, and that's available now on VOD. <laughs> podcast about Miyazaki our our topic is going to be movies about artists documentaries about artists creators didn't we didn't just limit ourselves to filmmakers right we artists or creators or anything like that yeah I mean there are a lot of these types of documents kind of a broad category I feel like almost any famous person you can think of had a lot of people you are not even that famous famous and you don't think of have at least one documentary about them if Mm. not more yes I suppose because it's an easy a relatively easy way to make a documentary, right? You use archival footage, you interview some people. Uh, there's a fan base usually. Most people have a That's fan a base. Good point. So yeah. if you want to kickstart something, right. you can reach out to them. They're artists themselves, they're creators. So generally, they're not going to be like, why do you want to do a film about me? Or, oh, I don't like the spotlight. I mean, there are so, certainly some creators who are going to shy away from that. But in most cases, they're going to be pretty open to it, assuming it's the right project, the right collaborator that sort of thing but it's also why so many of them are boring because they are for fans yes can be a little indulgent a little back padding Uh, like a giant blowjob in documentary form yes um (laughs) or whichever form of you know gratification you prefer (laughs) uh 
I also, I, I think that because you have to be inherently pretty dedicated to someone to make a movie about them. Right. I mean, it tends towards the very fond and sometimes the overly fond. Mm. Right. I mean, yeah, I yeah would they say, tend. Yeah, they. You don't see don't a ton tend to of... be warts and all portraits. No. And I was thinking about this a lot as particularly when it comes to hip hop documentaries, just because there have been a slew recent, like something I'm an expert in, but go ahead. Right. Something you love. Um, But there, there have been a few that have run into trouble in which the subject has basically like pulled away their blessing. Right. Oh, right. What was Michael Rappaport did one on tribe called quest. Michael Rappaport, the actor who's uh, also, you know, he, he, he loves a tribe called quest. And like, I, ultimately the band ended up like right before it's Sundance premiere, like going publicly and saying they did not approve of it. They did not like it. And I think it was because it was a little warts and all like it yeah. showed them at a point where they were like fighting. There was a lot of infighting and like they were on the verge of a breakup. Maybe we broke up. I don't remember, but there was, there was another one. Like there was a that. little Wayne. Little Wayne. That was yeah, it. The I Carter, remember. Yes. I really, Carter. really like, I, right. I, it's a great movie, but did it ever one, even come out? It, it did right before Sundance. It, where it had its premiere, right. Lil Wayne pulled his support. Right. I remember I was at it. that Sundance yeah. and I remember that we had done interviews, I think, with the filmmaker and like the next day, right after we had talked to him, that was, it was a huge controversy and a huge story because, you know, Lil Wayne decided what, for whatever reason that he didn't want to be involved. He didn't approve of it. And yeah, it can be very tough to make one of these and certainly to market and to release one of these sorts of films if you don't have the support of the subject. Right. And then also when you have, particularly I think when you're dealing with someone who is very used to everything about them being controlling everything about them as much as possible. Right. The idea of doing an honest look at someone, including sometimes when they're not all together and sometimes when they're grumpy or they're doing something selfish or something like that. You know, it just doesn't compute for, for a lot of these like very powerful current artists, mm. which is unfortunate because something like the Carter is a great movie, like is very compelling and sometimes kind of disturbing movie because Lil Wayne is shown like really high sometimes. And his friends talk about how much it bothers them at the same time. It's so much more, it feels so much more raw and less processed than a lot of other kind of slick or just like generally, you know, praise filled films can be like, right. and that's probably why he didn't want people to see it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think I'm looking up now, it looks like that film, I, there was a, a lawsuit about it. In fact, at one point where they were, you know, suing over control of the movie and the final cut and things like that. And I, I think it was ultimately released on DVD, though. So it did come out. It wasn't completely... It wasn't squashed entirely. It wasn't squashed. It wasn't buried. It does exist. But it certainly didn't get as wide a release as it may have if it had had his support, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, anything else you want to say generally about these films? Should we just get into them as you're thinking about them? Is there anything besides that not necessarily being so fawning that makes... A, a good documentary like this? I think other than that, maybe just being really in depth, mm. you know, if it's going to be for fans, sometimes you're like, well then have it be for fans, right? Have it be geeking out. Mm-hmm. I feel like, uh, to me, there's a, uh, I agree with that, but I would also add that I think these movies are a little bit like biopics, which are often about great artists. Right. I would rather see one that's very focused on an event, a period, as opposed to, 
an entire life. I would rather see a filmmaker making or not making, struggling to make one film than a biography of their whole life, you know, or, yeah. or a, a band trying to make one album or do one tour or something like that. Then I would rather see the complete history of the Rolling Stones, you yes. know, give, give me gimme shelter over the Rolling Stones story, basically in a nutshell. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, why don't I move on to my first film? first film which is, is it gimme shelter no oh. but which is absolutely about someone's whole life <laughs> but which I way think, to just shoot me down uh, Allison. um so my first pick is stanley kubrick a life in pictures <laughs> uh-huh sounds like the exact opposite it, of what i was exactly. saying but it's available to stream on hulu and it does i think there are certainly there are certainly aspects of this form in general that are inherently limited right like stanley kubrick has He's made some movies that people like to talk about. In fact, there is a documentary that is entirely about only one of his movies, you know, recently and about the many possible interpretations of it. Mm -hmm. What I do like about this movie is that it does exactly as promised, which is it takes you through his entire filmography. Stanley Kubrick having conveniently not made that many movies um, and it spends time on each of them, mm. including those early ones, which it uses as by bi early biography as well but it it actually spends like a good 15 minutes or so i would say on each movie which i is nice when you get to some of the movies that are, you're less familiar with you know like no people don't spend a lot of time dwelling on some of those early ones it's available to stream on hulu i don't know if i've mentioned that or not and it's directed by kubrick's assistant and sometimes executive producer jan harlan who's also uh, the brother of kubrick's widow christiane kubrick so someone who's certainly very close and someone who you're not going to get an objective viewpoint on um this is a movie that came out in 2001 kubrick had died in 1999 um shortly after completing you know his last film and what's really satisfying about this is just like the detail and the access that uh, the filmmakers are able to have, including footage from home videos of Kubrick as a little boy playing with his sister growing up in the Bronx, uh, including footage from home movies like of his family, his wife talking about how they met. She was in one of his movies. Uh, it's narrated by Tom Cruise, who is also one of the interviewees. And the list of interviewees is very, it's pretty impressive. Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Malcolm McDowell, Jack Nicholson, Woody Allen, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Sidney Pollock, among many others. Kubrick was certainly not short of admirers. I'm asking about The Shining, you know, it's such unusual. He says, well, in reality, this is an optimistic picture. And I said, Bon, Bon, what basis, Stanley? And he said, as the prag, you know, the existential pragmatic man that he was, he said, well, in some way, this movie's about ghosts. Anything that says there's anything after death is an optimistic story. He seized the chance to make a film that would both satisfy him artistically and meet the demands of the box office. There are still images in The Shining that I wake up screaming about. That little boy in the hall and the tracking of the steady cam. The little boy on the bicycle. Of the little boy. The sense of movement that that gave that picture inside this very, very foreboding place. The thing that I find very interesting about this, beyond just the information that's given, is the tension between making a movie that you want to have be very fond and the fact that Stanley Kubrick was, I, I think, inarguably a difficult personality 
a prickly exacting personality, which, you know, fed into his making great films. Uh, and it's funny in the movie to hear people talk around this in ways that I think make it very clear, even against the filmmakers, uh, intentions, uh, of how kind of complicated a person he could be to work with. Um, and, uh, it's like, there's one part in particular where they talk about, oh, it's so unfair that he was branded a mysterious recluse. He just preferred not to leave home and never wanted to talk to people. And, you know, there are other parts where people will be like, well, he wasn't that difficult to work with. And then they talk to Shelley Duvall, who clearly had like a terrible time working with him on The Shining, but who is like, uh, you know, I don't regret anything because who would regret acting in The Shining? It's an amazing film. Right. But I, I think that it manages to be a kind of more complicated movie despite itself by all of these things that sneak in around the edges in these interviews. And I mean, particularly for someone like Kubrick, who is kind of the the ultimate idea, fits like kind of the ultimate idea of the exacting, controlling director having that kind of accidentally seep in is it seems kind of like very satisfying and uh you know it's it's something if you're a fan of Kubrick's and I it's hard for me to imagine who isn't a fan of at least some of his movies if not all of them it's not just informative I think it's a really nicely broad look uh you know with its fair share of good details about the life of someone who really didn't like to talk about himself much and who really didn't put himself out there much and didn't do a ton of interviews. So uh, Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures, available to stream on Hulu. Uh, in terms of documentaries like that, I mean, I'll just throw one out that I just watched actually to sort of counteract that, which was the, the Altman doc, which is just called Altman, which just popped up on Netflix. And I watched that. I think it's directed by Ron Mann. And I mean, when you're describing the, the Kubrick doc, which I haven't seen, where you're saying they spent 15 minutes on one film, that sounds good. The, the This Altman doc, you know, they try to mention every single movie he made, and he made a lot of movies. And so, so many movies, And some yeah. of them, it's they literally just, like, throw up a title card, or they'll mention it for 30 seconds. And you don't feel like you're really learning anything, I mean, about the movies or about Robert Altman. And he's uh, a guy that I don't know a ton about and was interested in learning and didn't really feel like I walked away from a 90 minute film having really gained all that much. So that's when I, you know, I much rather would have heard, watched a film about the making of mash or something yeah. than, than this sort of very sketched out career overview. But nevertheless, uh, my first pick is going to be sort of more in the mold that I was talking about a filmmaker making one film, actually one of the most famous films i think in that style and it's funny i didn't really think about it until just now as i'm looking at it and i realized the title of this movie could be swapped with our listeners choice review the kingdom of dreams and madness would fit here and vice versa the film i'm going to recommend is called burden of dreams very similar from 1982 it's directed by les blank and it's available now on hulu plus and this is the famous film about director Werner herzog attempting to make Fitzcarraldo his mad vision mm -hmm. of this uh, crazy Klaus Kinski character trying to drag a boat over a mountain. And instead of doing this, I don't know, with special effects, with a model, with matte paintings, or even doing it for real, but doing it in a studio, or even going to South America, but not doing it in like one of the most hostile and brutal parts of the Amazon. Herzog couldn't handle that. No, we can't do it that way. It has to be done for real. And 
I think watching the movie, even though that I don't think he ever answers that question outright, which is sort of interesting. Like, why did you feel so strongly about this story and about this act, this crazy act, which apparently is based loosely on a true story of a guy doing something like this, taking a steamship and 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 bringing it over a mountain. The difference in the real story, apparently, according to Burden of Dreams and what Herzog says in the film, is that the real story involved breaking the steamship down into like 15 parts and then trekking each individual part over the mountain. But that's not, that's not very dramatic. Let's do the whole ship. And <laughs> the, the attempts to get this ship over the mountain, which is part of the fictional film Fitzcarraldo, in real life, they really did it. And the attempts to do it are a big part of the documentary. And I almost feel like you almost can't really watch one movie without the other. And certainly, I don't think you really get the full sense of Fitzcarraldo without watching Burden of Dreams. It's almost like the Rosetta Stone of that movie. It's like, well, why did Herzog want to tell that story? Well, in order to find that out, you kind of need to watch Burden of Dreams and see how he was obsessed himself with ha accomplishing this thing. And it doesn't even have so much to do with the real story or whatever in that original story interested him as it did sort of putting forth his theory of cinema and doing it and putting it into action by doing this impossible thing. You know, there's the, the famous line about Herzog about finding the ecstatic truth when he was making a movie, whether it was a fiction movie or a documentary, that uh, his films were in search of this ecstatic truth. And I guess that is ultimately why you can't just use special effects or a model or do it on a sound studio. You have to really do it. If you're filming a real ship going over a real mountain, that is the ecstatic truth. And you are capturing something real there. Kinski always says it's full of erotic elements. I don't see it so much erotic. I see it more full of obscenity. It's just, and nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they, they sing. They just screech in pain. And what you were talking about earlier, Allison, about how uh, about fawning portrayals in movies that are too generous to their subjects. Certainly you do come across and walk away from Burden of Dreams feeling this is a man who's so passionate about filmmaking. And that is sort of inspiring. But I don't think the movie shies away from the fact that what he's doing is at times very dangerous, very reckless. Um, there's a lot of talk about how people could basically die. His scheme to haul this ship could have cost people's lives. At one point, someone asks an engineer who is the guy who's supposed to be in charge of doing this and quits. Like, what are the odds that this works? And he's like, about 30%. And they're like, does that mean 70% chance of catastrophe? And he's like, yeah, pretty much. That's, that's what could happen. So it doesn't really uh, shy away from the fact that he's kind of a madman. And he even admits in the movie that maybe he should go to an insane asylum and shouldn't be allowed to, to, uh, to make movies anymore. So it's a, it, it's a fascinating film about an artist, about dreams, the burden of dreams, and about what it takes to make a movie in search of the ecstatic truth. And it's funny at the same time as well, in a very dark and disturbing way. That's The Burden of Dreams. That's available right now on Hulu+. Plus. 
All right. My next pick is another one of these uh, that is about like a, a band in this case working on one album. So it is exactly the kind of movie you were describing. That I like. The concentrated one. I don't know that we're picking sides here. I don't know that I've ever said I was yes, a great we supporter. Are. It's just like kind. the great Black Mirror debate of the last episode. Well, I was right in that one. So mm, mm. anyway, that. this uh, it's a film that actually only recently became available digitally, uh, despite the fact that it's a 2004 film. Um, it's Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, which is now available for rent on iTunes. And when we say a lot of these movies tend to be overly fond, this is the blessed movie in which uh, it, it is truly warts and all and showing a band in all kinds of unusual and I think sometimes very unflattering and sometimes just very vulnerable ways that don't necessarily fit in with their public image. And uh, in a way where clearly they uh, clearly there are times where they wonder if they should be letting cameras in at all. Uh, it's directed by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky, who directed the Paradise Lost trilogy of documentaries and ended up using some of Metallica's music in it. It was the first time the band had let the f a film use their music and was kind of helpful for them. Um, and in this case, it's about uh, some kind of monster is about the making of Metallica's 2003 album, Saint Anger. It is also, and more infamously, about the turmoil the band was in when writing and recording the album when they ended up having to hire a therapist to meet with them in sessions to talk out a lot of their issues and their tensions. The band is really, in some parts of the film, on the verge of breaking up, basically. And there are huge tensions between frontman James Hetfield and drummer Lars Ulrich, um, who are the two strong personalities in the group, um, in addition to guitarist Kurt Hammett, who really comes across as this kind of like Bambi, like nice guy compared to the two of them, or as the kid who's trying to placate his parents. While Why fighting. are mommy and daddy fighting? It basically, there are many moments where it feels exactly like that. And I'm going to say Lars is the mom and James Hetfield is the dad. Um, just because sometimes Lars has longer hair, I guess. I don't know. Lars feels like the mom a bit. Um, the movie starts with bassist, the band's lo uh, longtime bassist, James Newstead, quitting or maybe being thrown out of the band. And this is one of the things that's explored over these sessions is that Hetfield in particular has huge control issues and didn't like that the bassist was dedicating himself more and more to the side project. And over the course of the movie, we see this side project, this band that he is like, you know, now dedicating himself full time to the band goes to help support him and goes to the audience. And they're all basically so stressed that their, their good bassist's band is going to turn out to be better than they are. And it's one of the many great moments in this movie in which you understand that underneath the kind of rock God image that these guys would like to still hold on to, they are deeply insecure <laughs> They fight all the time. They bicker. They have huge egos, but they're also like terrified of uh, being pushed out of the band. All of them are, including, you know, like founding members are afraid of being pushed out of the band. And the dynamic between Hetfield and Ulrich is, Ulrich is great. I, I, I think uh, they have amazing passive aggressive fights in the language of therapy you know, with the therapist there trying to get them to be honest about one another. And you understand exactly how Hetfield is like controlling 
and kind of difficult and doesn't ever want to be left out of decisions. And at the same time, Elric manages to push his buttons all the time by wanting to not follow rules and by not wanting to be tied down. Uh, and I, I think the kind of terrible honesty of a lot of these scenes is great to watch. And, uh, you know, part of, I think, part of what this movie is about beyond just what it's like to be in a band with people for decades is that these guys are all grown men now. They are dads, you know, they are, they're in like long-term relationships. They own ranches. Uh, Kurt Kamet goes out horseback riding on his ranch. They are so far from being, you know, 20 something dudes who have a screaming match stock off and come back and go back on a tour and get wasted together. In fact, James Hetfield leaves for six months in the middle of this movie to go to rehab and comes back, you know, all kind of scrubbed clean and uh, talk, you know, using all of these rehab turns to the like infuriating some of his bandmates, particularly when he says, you know, part of my treatment is that I can only work from noon to 4 p.m. Then I have to go home and spend time with my family. And the band is like, we're recording an album. What are you talking about? I think it sounds stock to my ears. I mean, you want me to write it down? I think oh, yeah, it, I feel it stock, I okay? I so I... Come, no, come. when you say, you're telling me what to play right now. You're telling me, you should play with what Kirk's doing, and I'm telling you it's stock. Dude, fine. You know what, guys? Why don't we just go in there and just hammer it out, all right, instead of hammering on each other? The, the just the kind of messiness of how they have to go through this process it looks like i don't like a family really it really it, it, it's like a family have in family therapy together everyone sitting around and talking about their issues and it is amazing how compelling it can be to watch these guys be put through that and kind of put themselves through it uh especially given that there's a certain there's a certain narrative that tends to happen with rock rock documentaries, you know, and a lot of them are stories of either destruction and then redemption or just destruction. There's nothing kind of less romantically destructive than a bunch of middle-aged guys sitting out in a room talking about their feelings with therapists. But it's it's a very positive thing and you you really start to appreciate the work that goes into being part of a creative team for that long because rock and roll is certainly never meant to last forever. Rock and roll does not account much for get, growing older and growing into middle age and still being together. Um, so even if you're not a big Metallica fan and I'm, you know, no great devotee, this movie is fascinating and I'm glad that it's finally available digitally. Um, Metallica, some kind of monster and you can rent it on iTunes. All right, that's a great pick. And it's interesting. I think it would make a good double feature with my next pick, which is also about a band in crisis, but one that's not quite so open about their feelings, which is sort of what is interesting. And re-looking at it again today, I just watched it again earlier today for the first time in quite a while. I felt maybe it was a little bit of a weakness. I'd still recommend it, though. The film is called I Am Trying to Break Your Heart from 2002 and directed by Sam Jones. You can rent this one, and it's also available to stream on Amazon Prime right now. And it is a film about the band Wilco, one of my favorite bands, which I think partially biases me because there's a lot of Wilco music. A lot of this is uh, just performances, and like they're recording an album, the album that became Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, 
and then they're rehearsing and then they go on tour. And so there's a lot of concerts and just Wilco songs being played. And I love Wilco. So I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to enjoy the film just for that reason. But uh, Sam Jones happened to sort of catch the band at this time of particular upheaval. I think right before filming started, they had replaced their drummer. They don't really mention it in the film, but they have a brand new drummer as the film begins. And then by the end of the movie, their lineup changes even more radically when someone in the band uh, leaves, quits, is fired. It's not entirely clear how you want to put it, but a key member of the group leaves. And in the midst of all this, they're recording this album. Their record label rejects the album, and they're trying to figure out, do we revise it to... Uh, uh, to appease the record label do we quit do we do we leave the record label do we what do we do what is the future for wilco it's all very much up in the air it's a good looking movie it's shot in black and white and we get to see a lot of the creative process which is probably the best part we see them like working in their studio in their loft and we see uh, songs kind of coming into form if you recognize the songs if you know yankee hotel foxtrot you'll see some of the songs sort of in their roughest state and you'll see them kind of evolve into that versions that wound up on the album that the the record label probably wasn't as into because they didn't sound like previous Wilco records quite so much. The thing that makes it different from something like Metallica is, although we do see some friction in the band, there are times where we see the members not even so much arguing. It's much more like passive-aggressive. They'll be sort of like, do you want to do it that way? Well, we well, well, this is we should do it this way. Well, are you sure that's the right way to do it? Well, and then they'll, that'll spark like a five-minute awkward sort of ar- non-argument argument, and then it'll end. And one of the and then Jeff Tweedy, the you know the singer songwriter, and Wilco will like leave in a huff and go in the bathroom and puke his guts out because he has migraines and issues with migraines, and uh, and then he'll come back and he'll apologize and you know and 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 they'll go forward, but then. They never really address it. It's sort of the elephant in the room. And I guess in one hand, that's sort of interesting that they go through the motions of playing these performances. And when they're playing on stage, things seem fine and everyone's smiling and rocking out. But then you see sort of the cracks in the facade where they'll in the studio, they're sort of bickering over nothing or when they're rehearsing. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll, Jeff Tweedy is sort of like, maybe we don't need two guitars on this song, which is sort of a weird thing to say to a band that has like two guitarists, you know? I didn't know that you wanted it to sound exactly like it does here. I thought you wanted it to be the noise going over whatever was really on heavy metal drummer there. See what I'm saying? I, think I don't want what... the noise, I don't want the orchestra to go into heavy metal drummer. It cuts right there. Right. And I, what, okay, okay, let me try to explain myself. Um, what I, I didn't know. This you... is taking a lot longer than doing one mute. I know, but can I explain myself, please? I don't know, though. Watching it again, I did sort of feel like I wouldn't say that the 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 key departure in the band is comes out of nowhere. Certainly, it's, it's foreshadowed, it's set up. But I don't know. I felt like I did feel watching it again that maybe there was just a little bit being hidden from the cameras. And it's still a good documentary, and there's some really lovely cinematography and music and it is interesting to watch this just the period in this band's career is really fascinating but i i i do wonder if there there was a better film here maybe not necessarily in the footage but maybe i don't know if sam jones missed some things or they or perhaps or wilco yeah. yeah perhaps there's, they, there's actually a part in the metallica doc where the filmmakers are on screen talking about 
something they weren't they allowed should, to shoot or whether or not they should be there like they right. should keep going and i wonder also if that if there were conversations in that film right about what had to be should be left out right and they do miss things like you know they they're not there when and maybe not surprisingly when the bandmender leaves or is quit or is fired or whatever that happens off screen and then it's sort of a rashomon situation where you see people talking about it and describing what they think happened and what they feel is the cause but I I don't know I have to say going back and looking at it I wasn't I wasn't as blown away as I was going back and looking at Burden of Dreams which I think is amazing and holds up really well I'm trying to break your heart I do recommend I do think it's good I do think it's worth seeing but now I have to be totally I got to be honest and say that I don't think it's a masterpiece I don't think it's an elite film just a good film of this type but I do recommend you check it out especially if you have Amazon Prime it is available to stream there for free and. The Wilco music, of course, is still fantastic. So that's I Am Trying to Break Your Heart. Thank <laughs> And that brings us to our listener's choice review. At the end of every episode, we give you three choices for our next main review, which is determined by your vote. And this time your choices were Bruno Dumont's Little Can Can, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, a documentary about Studio Ghibli, and Pride, the British film based on the true story of LGBT activists teaming up with striking minors in the 1980s. And The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness won comfortably with 50% of the vote. The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, which is available to rent on multiple platforms, is directed by Mami Sunada, who's made one other documentary about her father called Ending Note, Death of a Japanese Salaryman. So uh, quite a title. It's a comedy. Yes, quite a title for a personal documentary. For this new film, she got unprecedented access to Studio Ghibli, the uh, Japanese animation studio that's made some of the landmark animated features that exist, most by director Hayao Miyazaki, who is one of the co-founders, and some others by Isao Takahata, who is the other co-founder and a, a very good director in his own right. Tsunada initially shoots Ghibli like this enchanted kingdom, or at least the museum part of it. It's this, It's got this beautiful atrium, carved wood, uh, it's the sunlight slanting in, and then and we when we see the the studi- studio itself, it's also kind of beautiful. There's a cat roaming the grounds. There's a garden on the rooftop, but it's also a real workplace dominated by some strong personalities, and it's a place that's subject to market forces like anywhere else. And Tsunada gets a look at all of this at a pivotal time in Ghibli's existence. Uh, Miyazaki is, during the movie, working on what he says will be his last feature, which is The Wind Rises, which came out last year. And off camera, almost entirely, Takahata is finishing what will almost certainly be his last film as well, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which came out last year and was one of my favorite films. Um, there's no, there's also no clear successor in place for when Miyazaki retires. His son, Goro Miyazaki, who we see briefly, is kind of a reluctant director and by no means uh, champing at the bit to take over for his father. Um, and anyway, Ghibli is tied inextricably to Hayao Miyazaki, to films like My Neighbor Totoro and Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away. 
and you know one of the themes that the film raises is whether or not the studio can continue without him at the center at all and that's still kind of an open question uh, and, and Miyazaki is certainly a fascinating personality he can look twinkly like a twinkly grandpa but he's not warm really and he's prone to saying some devastating things during the movie these like wonderfully pessimistic things at some point he wonders if filmmaking is not just some grand hobby uh and says well maybe there was a time when you could make films that mattered but now so my question to you matt is do you feel did you feel watching this film that it is essentially an elegy for studio ghibli or do you feel that Miyazaki is just a fatalist and probably talks like this all the time? Uh, maybe a little of both. I did get the sense that he is kind of shockingly pessimistic. Yes. And at the end of the movie or towards the end of the movie, there's a lot of, will this be the end? Will this, you know, is this his last movie? Is this the end of Ghibli? And he seems to think throughout the movie that it might be, it might be. And th- like you said, there is no succession plan and his son doesn't seem to want to take over. But you do, there are things that happen towards the end of the film that make you think that perhaps it's the, the future of Ghibli isn't quite as, as dark as, dark <laughs> as he tends to make it seem. But that, yeah, he is sort of a, a shockingly pessimistic guy. I did really enjoy this movie a lot. I have to say, I, I liked it more than I expected to. I mean, it's not a fabulous, groundbreaking documentary in a formal sense, but I was a, it's a very lovely portrait of this place and these people. And if, in fact, this is an elegy and this place is going to go away, or perhaps this whole style of two-dimensional animation is going away, which you could probably make an argument is more likely even than Ghibli going away... I'm glad we have this as this this document, as this thing that we can look back on and say, this is what this place was like. This is what this form was like at its peak, at its best. I think that's something that's really great to have in this film. Yeah, it's definitely, you definitely have a sense that they are this place, this holdout, right? That they're making movies in this old-fashioned kind of handmade way, making traditional animation cell animation in a world that's moving past that very quickly and there is still this like immense fondness for their films their Mm -hmm. films are a tremendous brand yes and one of the very interesting parts is when you see them talking about the monetizing of the brand Mm -hmm. it is like disney you know they have characters they sell merchandise they have the museum. They try to about. weigh whether they should be appealing to older nostalgic fans or to young kids yes. growing up. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, there's one part where they go to a uh, convention and among other things, you see someone dressed in Miyazaki cosplay, like as Hayao yes. Miyazaki, yes. which is one of the, I think, strangest and kind of most amazing things. Right. And poses with his producer. Yes. As, <laughs> as you have this very surreal image of the real producer with the guy cosplaying as his partner. Yeah. It's really funny. But it does... It, the movie does seem to suggest that it takes a certain personality type, maybe like a kind of intense, slightly damaged personality type to really dedicate yourself to this kind of work. Yes. I think especially one of the things that they it, it's always an under it's kind of an undercurrent because you never see Takahata. He works right. in a separate building. He's working on, as far as we can tell, a very troubled production of Princess Kaguya. That they'll never, it'll you, never be finished. It'll he never keeps be skipping. Finished, yeah. He misses his deadlines. Right. He he's, is like he's even more reclusive and like harder to get a handle on. And than they suggest Miyazaki. they suggest he maybe doesn't even want to finish it. Right. Yeah. And yet, 
you get the feeling that these two people have always had this kind of codependent rivalry. They see yeah. themselves as rivals and yeah. that they kind of need each other, even though their personality types are both seem really difficult. Right. It's not <laughs> quite Mozart and Salieri. It's like two Mozarts almost that are like competing with one another to be the best. What a terrifying way to run a business <laughs> around like two people who are like that. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, th- th- you, you touch on another really interesting thing about this movie, which is not just that it takes a certain type to make films, but that that certain type might not enjoy it. Like we think of film as, as an escape, as this beautiful art form, as this thing that we all love. I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast, you love movies, right? And I think for a lot of people in our audience, a lot of them want to be filmmakers. They do it in their spare time. You know, it's like a passion of theirs. And the quote that I wrote down in my notes from, from Miyazaki is, filmmaking only brings suffering. And that he says he's never felt happy in his life. He doesn't understand (laughs) when people say, do what makes you happy, which you would think if someone said that to a lot of our listeners, they would say, well, I'm going to quit my boring day job and I'm going to go make films because that's what would make me happy. Right. And for him, it's almost the opposite, that he does this as his day job, as a very regimented day job. He works six days a week. He goes to the office. He, you know, he like has a routine that he follows strictly. And even though he doesn't seem unhappy, he said he talks about it as suffering. Literally, that's the word he uses, suffering. And then he says, I can't wait. I can't believe I want to make another one. Right. Another movie. Right. But he does what, you know, it's fascinating. Yeah. I would say this is a movie for fans. I don't know how this would look to you. I don't know that you would care about the things that happen in this movie if you were not already a fan of his movies. I, I, I feel like there's it would be missing this major context. Ma- maybe. I, I, but I would maybe disagree because I don't consider myself... I like Miyazaki's movies that I've seen, but one of the reasons I wanted to do this and, and watch the older movies is I don't know his earlier filmography at all. So while I would consider myself a casual fan, I'm certainly not a hardcore fan. So maybe I did miss some of the details. But I really enjoyed this movie, like I said, more than I thought because... I really, I felt like I really got to know this place. I got to know the people in this place. And again, I did really think that it was a lovely document of this world that perhaps is vanishing. So I don't know that I would, I, I would agree with you. I think maybe fans might get more out of it, but I wouldn't just limit it to Miyazaki fans. Mm, that's interesting. I, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, like as, I, I feel like if you weren't, if you didn't have a familiarity with at least a few of his films, I think that there's something that would be missing in terms of the pessimism he shows because by certainly Ghibli films are not all sunshine and light. You Mm -hmm. know, he has made some movies that even like, even something like spirited away, which is this child adventure Mm -hmm. has plenty of dark undertones. But I think that, there is still something that is shocking about the creator of these things about uh, the creator of Totoro about the creator of this brand that is, you know, a Disney-like brand, basically, right. will say things. I wrote down the quote that is, I think, a kind of central quote, which is when he's asked about the future of the studio. And he, standing on the rooftop, like, looks off and says, the future is clear. It's going to fall apart. I can already <laughs> see it. Yeah. What's the use of worrying? It's inevitable. Ghibli is just a random name I got from an airplane. Yeah. It's only a name. Mm. And he's literally standing on top of this studio he built. Right. Like this mini empire that Watching he's a built. sunset. A Watching very a sunset. metaphorical sunset. Yes. And then it sets and he's like, how pretty. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I think that there, I, it's fascinating. I think the tension between the person he is and the kind of this 
the work that he's put out. Sure. I, 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 I really enjoyed that. I think, you know, it is, it's not a fast paced documentary and I think it like allows itself to ramble in ways, you know, it, there are a lot of, it takes a lot of breaks to look around the, the, the studio. But I, I do, I think, especially if you are a Ghibli fan, I think this is an invaluable film to watch. Yeah, I, but rambling, I'm, I don't know if I'd call it rambling, but I mean, what I liked about it, the word I would use is it's very intimate. You know, it's not verite. The camera, the camera is present, and Miyazaki often talks to the crew and sort of the, the interviews. There are no, like, there's not a lot of formal interviews, like talking head interviews. It's much more she'll like... She'll ask him what he's doing. She'll ask him what, she, what he's doing in the moment, or he'll just start talking about what he's doing, how he's feeling. And I like that a lot about it because it did feel very intimate and very informal, and you did feel like you were really catching a glimpse of this place as it really is. They didn't, they didn't dress things up. Uh, they didn't pretty it up to to put on a, a brave face or put on their, their best foot forward for the cameras. I thought that was great. Uh, getting back to what you were saying about Ghibli fans, I think the one way I would agree with you is that I felt like this movie only enriched my understanding of The Wind Rises, which was the last Miyazaki movie, the movie that he's making over the course of this documentary. And that's a movie I loved uh, when it came out, one of my favorite movies of, of last year. And I just thought it was an absolute masterpiece. And it's funny because some people objected to it and claimed that it was too pro-war, that it was somehow glamorizing the, the main character and what he did. He was a, an airplane inventor and he created these zero planes that Japan used in World War II and that perhaps somehow this film wasn't critical enough of him or what he, he did or his role in World War II. And you do see him talking about how, how much he is anti-war and how passionately he feels about peace and all these ideals. But what I found so interesting was it really opened up the interpretation I took from the movie, not knowing a ton about Miyazaki, not knowing a lot about him personally or his biography was, I thought it was a movie about filmmaking, about being an artist and wanting to make something and what it's like to be an artist in an industrial system. And what I thought was so fascinating about this documentary is you see how much he is the lead character in that movie Right, because he is the guy who dreams of, of being an animator and wanting to make art. And over the course of the film, what we is eventually admitted to, I don't know if he does, but his producing partner does, is that this movie is not necessarily something he dream wanted to make first. They needed him to make it because Ghibli is a company with like four hundred employees. And and what you see when he's I think when he's talking about suffering and why filmmaking is suffering is like he has this huge responsibility, right? That 400 people's livelihoods are resting on his, his shoulders. And so you feel that weight in the documentary and you see that reflected into The Wind Rises where it's about a guy whose creations are, are sort of taken away from him or used or, you know, that he becomes part of this larger machine that's out of his control and how you can still feel passionately about what you're creating but what happens to that creation, whether it's a, a plane or a character that becomes a stuffed animal, it becomes something bigger than you. It becomes something out of your hands. And you're, you become a worker, not just a creator. That art inevitably leads to commerce. And I thought all of that stuff, which I found in The Wind Rises, I found here in a fascinating way. And I felt it totally it like made me want to go back and rewatch that movie. It sort of validated what I thought about that movie and kind of even deepened that side of it in a way that I just thought was fascinating. I think those are all really good points. And I, I think that 
it's hard not to watch that film or to watch the tale of princess kaguya who which is intensely kind of about mortality mm-hmm. you know uh, among other things and not and not think about and then watch this movie and not think about them in a kind of completely different ways right though i will say i will say i think you know the idea of being part of of art and commerce and kind of their relation both in that movie and then in terms of the documentary i mean i think there are a lot of parallels but one of the things that i i think is so kind of pointed about this documentary is that the kind of shrug or the kind of indifference in some ways that Miyazaki seems to have to what will happen next to his creation. You know, he did, they needed him to make another film and right. they, they both, they need these, these need, they need the two movies. Mozarts have to keep working, right? They need these movies to be successful, Yeah, but he also has no interest in kind of like battling for this legacy. He, you know, like I think it's something that I find like, so, kind of admirable and devastating about <laughs> about maybe his attitude in it is that he does seem to have reached this point where he's like it doesn't matter if it sticks around and it doesn't matter even if it's some of it's affected there does seem to be some truth to that as well where right. he's willing he would be willing to let it go and particularly given that ghibli then went on hiatus right. right in the past year they they let a lot of people go right that, that i think there's some yeah fact to that yeah but i you know it's funny because he does say like oh it's gonna break up it's just a name but i do wonder given the sort of elegiac tone to this movie to the wind rises to the the way he just you know the the expressions on his face the looking at the sunset that perhaps there's more sadness there than he's willing to admit you know what i mean like i that was another thing that i sort of felt was that that there's you know that it's maybe not quite as cut and dry as he wants it to make think it seem i don't think he's impassive by any means yeah. you know but i do it was the part of that movie it's the part of the movie that has just kind of stuck with me uh, is the, the incredible bittersweetness of yeah. those scenes. Yeah. So this was this was a really nice surprise for me. I really liked it a lot. I would certainly recommend it for fans of Studio Ghibli and also I would say non-fans they might want to check it out as well cuz I felt like it's a it's a very well-made documentary. It's The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness and it's available for rent now. Okay, very briefly, let's let's talk about some of the new movies in theaters in a segment we call Singer and Wilmore's Completely Concise and Totally Succinct New Release Roundup. Allison, you were just saying you have seen Paddington. Yes. Which is, I believe, the film about the bear, the murderous bear, right? Yes. It's he goes about on a kill spree. It's an adorable children's film about a bear that goes on a killing spree. They, they take away his marmalade sandwiches, and, charming, and he's and like, oh, London. no. Oh, no, you didn't. Yeah. Paddington then, gonna, gonna get you. And then bites off people's heads. Right. It's like Grizzly Man... Uh, meet Stuart Little. Basically. I know it was an interesting reboot in terms of the direction to a take, bold new direction to take the franchise. Yeah. but I I think it'll turn out to be very lucrative. Okay. Um. No, it's very charming. Oh. It's, yes. Even though I think the reason that meme came up was that early stills of Look, the animated yeah. bear looked, looked like nightmare ho- fuel, vaguely horrifying. Yes, but yeah. the reality is, it's apparently, this, it's a very heartwarming and touching film. It is. I've, it's it's very lovely and uh, kind of ties in. I think it, it manages to, it has a lot of touches of like a fantastic Mr. Fox uh-huh. or it, it's got a lot of this like little bits of Wes Anderson style nostalgia to it. And, and also kind of like cleverness in terms of, for instance, showing the house that he's staying at from a cutaway, like a dollhouse and things like that. It still also has 
modern day touches, not all of which I love, like, oh, Born to be Wild to show someone being wild. Or That's a modern touch? That move, that song's from like 1968. I mean, no, I mean like a ch- modern children's movie. I you see. know, there are certain The stock- co-opting of old songs yes. and, and, uh, and justifying them. Yes. I okay, think I enough. Feel Good also shows up, you know? Yeah. And I could do with those, uh, uh, that those, but... I don't know. It's really, it's very cute. This is what I've been hearing. Yeah. I, I did not expect to like it so much. Yeah. Um, so well, let's talk about Black Hat. Then. Yes. That's the other big, Which the big is release. Which we watched together. We did. We sat next to each other and we walked out having had very different uh, yeah. experiences. I felt Im- immediately walking out of it. I thought it was pretty horrible. Yes. But I will say I've come around a bit in terms of at least the look of it. It's it a beautiful looks, movie. It looks like all of Michael Mann's films. Yes. It looks super cool. Yes, very cool. I just feel like, it ha- I mean, not only, it's. I'm fine with the fact that the whole hacker international cyber drama is preposterous. Yes. That's fine. I think the thing is just, I feel like Michael Mann kind of doesn't, isn't interested in it. It you feels may like be the right. volume is like turned down on all of the characters. Mm. They just look awesome. I mean, running around with these like designer shades and kind of, striding confidently through jakarta yeah yeah that you're describing a lot of the things i liked about it i will i mean we should say just very briefly that it's the new michael mann film it is about hacking and it's Chris like hemsworth plays a not entirely convincing no he's, <laughs> he's super ridiculous hacker. he's the most one of the most <laughs> ridiculous hackers in the history of film which is saying something yes he is he looks like thor he, you know he, he didn't does. lose any he wears weight a lot of like um like very deep v-neck shirts yes his hair is magnificent his hair is incredible yes his hair he deserves an Oscar, an honorary Oscar, just for incredible hair. Even in jail, his character starts to film in jail, oh. and he looks like he just stepped out of a shampoo commercial. He does. It's yes. incredible, and I- and he is in completely ripped. And the and never once in this movie do we see him work out, except the beginning of the movie. He's like he reading two. Foucault, yes. and then he does like three wall push-ups where he's like leaning on the wall and he does these crazy push-ups, and it's like, well, I'm Thor. That's all I need now. I'm ripped forever. Yes, prison does. life is good. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, it is a totally ridiculous movie. I'm going to say something that's probably going to be unpopular with a lot of our listeners. Oh, let's hear it. And that's this. I, I And this movie kind of crystallized it for me. I feel like a lot of Michael Mann's movies are silly, that they're taken a little more seriously than they should be. Like, Heat... Uh, this is going to get me in trouble. Heat Ooh. is a silly movie. Like, it's cool. It's awesome. The action is fantastic. Pacino and De Niro together in that one scene is unbelievable. But, like, Pacino ranting and raving and, like, you know, she's got a great ass and you got your head all the way up it. Like, he has, it's just, it's it's way over the top. It's it, At times, it's super, super silly. And, like, the, De Niro's girlfriend in that movie is, like, a book, what is she, like, a bookstore clerk or something? And she has the most amazing Los Angeles apartment in history. That's basically what it is here. It's, like, hackers who look like, you know, shampoo models and superheroes and they're and they're they look fantastic, and they have these unbelievable gun battles. And no, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's totally, extremely silly, and you have to sort of just buy the ticket, take the ride. But if you just kind of accept what it's doing for what it is, it's. I just found it very entertaining. Yeah, see, I didn't feel like it was very entertaining. I thought it was fairly boring. But yeah, I've heard other people say this. Here's what I will say about Michael Mann. I think that when he is on, when he is working. He takes things that should be silly and instead makes them like lush and cinematic and kind of like things that you give into. And I will say this, Last of the Mohicans, a movie that I love so much, Mm -hmm. is a movie that is so over the top and swoony. Right. And it works so well. Like he does that when he's on better than anyone else. I feel like in this movie, 
it has it never gets there it has a lot of scenes that look so good it has characters that have no personalities at all yeah, I mean, I, I don't really go to a Michael Mann movie too often for the characters all that much. I mean, yeah, but I mean, you you don't want them to feel like they're basically set dressing, which is what I feel like he uses them for in this. It's not just that oh they're underdeveloped. It's that I like they're the, when the two of the characters get together romantically, you feel like you like literally they've spent like two seconds in each other's yeah, company. Work. No, I'm not going to defend it. <laughs> and it doesn't it, like, work. The movie literally like cuts around almost all conversation and time they spend together like that's the part that you don't like you know the that's unimportant and so the all it is is i'm like mashing their faces together on a really like gorgeously staged but it looks top. great yes looks great when they mash their faces together exactly. no i mean you're right i don't disagree with anything you just said i just you know i didn't really sweat that stuff too much i really just kind of got caught up no, in the look it's of no the movie. daniel day lewis being like I will find you. Love that movie in so much. Waterfall. It's so good. You love that so I much. I love that movie. No, I don't think it's an all-time classic. I think that it's got a couple of really great action scenes. There's this one like really long like shootout that involves like a shipping. Where are they? Like a shipping yard, and they're shooting through I the don't crates. Remember where they are? Oh most man, of the it time. is incredible. It is yeah. so intense. Like the bullets are like going through the shipping crates, and they're like you know whizzing right past their head and stuff. And there's it's just like it's really amazing and there's another shootout that's really on intense the on the yeah. street i didn't love the shipping container shootout but i think oh, the one like that, that you're talking about which takes place in hong kong the that hong one's kong very scene good. yeah yes um I, I, you know like i said it is a silly movie do not go in if you're going to be going in there being like you know no hacker looks like this you're gonna that's well, beyond that, even you can't that, do it like when you actually see him doing his hacking work you're like like that wasn't very no it's either like magic or like something so <laughs> mundane you're yes, like yes i know that was his super trick like yeah yeah <laughs> he futzed with the settings on his <laughs> iphone like I, that's hacking he i said he sent a phishing email <laughs> to the nsa <laughs> anyway so yeah the split vote on black split hat vote. yeah well people can write in and tell us wh- who, who they, they agree with i think they're gonna agree with me because i'm right but that's I just my opinion agree with me because i'm always right yeah Let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball. That's the segment where we wrap up the show by giving you three new titles on streaming, two listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us, and one film chosen blindly by number from our Netflix My Lists. Allison, you want me to go first here? Yeah, why don't you go first? All right. All right, three new releases. All right, let's start with a new film on Hulu, the superb indie Goodbye Solo from director Ramin Barani. It stars Red West, a former bodyguard of Elvis Presley, who uh, hires a cab driver named Solo, a man who's originally from Senegal, to take him on this lengthy car ride. An unlikely friendship forms between the two men on their journey, which is just this beautiful little sensitive drama. It was one of Roger Ebert's favorite films in the last years of his life. It's really great. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen Ramin Barani's films in general, they're also generally really, really good. His most recent one will be at Sundance, 99 Homes. With is that Andrew Garfield yes, and Michael Shannon? Andrew, yes. Oh man, great combination. It's kind of like I've seen it. It's kind of like a Florida real estate crisis, Wall Street. So like the Queen of Versailles meets Wall Street, kind of a thing. Yeah, it's got a bit of that. Oh, that sounds really good. All right, well, this one is called Goodbye Solo. That one's available on Hulu. Next up, I've got two films we've covered previously on the podcast, so I just want to mention them here. Say they're available for streaming now. I wanted to highlight them, p- let people know they're out there. First up is Frank. The recent and very interesting indie starring Michael Fassbender as the paper mache head wearing frontman 
of an indie rock band that gets a new member played by Dom Hall Gleason, who dreams of stardom and kind of pushes the group into uncharted waters. You can uh, listen to a, a longer discussion of that film on Film Spotting SVU number 72, which you can find at filmspottingsvu.com. And finally, our listener's choice review from Film Spotting SVU number 68, which uh, again, you can find on filmspottingsvu.com. That is Starred Up, which is available now on Amazon Prime. It's the British prison drama directed by David McKenzie and starring the very talented Jack O'Connell as a young man who's been, quote-unquote, starred up, graduated basically from juvie to adult prison. Ben Mendelsohn co-stars as his father, who's living in that same jail, and we watch what happens to both of them when they encounter each other behind bars for the first time in a while. I, I think you liked this one a little bit more than I did. I did, yeah. But we both recommended it. Both very much admired O'Connell and Mendelsohn's performances. And like the meticulous way it sort of observed this prison, the life inside the prison and the details, playing close attention to all these little details, felt very authentic, really gritty. It's a good movie. That's Startup, available on Amazon Prime. Okay, two listener recommendations. All right, first up, I've got a recommendation from Craig in Orange, California. He says, as much as I love seeing a beloved classic get released by Criterion, what I kind of love more is when they expose me to a film I've never even heard of before. Case in point... Il Sorpasso, which is streaming now on Hulu Plus. This tragic comic road movie from Dino Rissi features wonderful performances by Vittorio Gassman and Jean-Louis Trintignant, a catchy pop song score, and a fascinating look at mid-century life outside of Rome. That's Il Sorpasso streaming now on Hulu Plus. And we also got an email here from Christopher. Christopher says... So a new year begins. I was listening to the newest episode yesterday, which I enjoyed thoroughly. I am looking forward to starting my viewing of Black Mirror this evening. And it occurred to me that there was an interesting link between the topic of the show and a major addition to my movie collection that has just come in the mail. That is, I acquired the new Criterion Collection box set, sensing a theme here on these listener recommendations, of the complete Jacques Tati films set. I've always liked Tati's films a lot, and I think... Two of them would make good viewing alongside the technophobia films you guys talked about last week. Uh, I'm just going to mention the first one here, which is Mon Uncle, which is available for rent on iTunes. Christopher writes, This is the more directly techno-comedy film of the, of the two. In it, Tati's Monsieur Hulot visits relatives who are in the process of perfecting their new modern home with all of the most up-to-date modern conveniences. Of course, when Hulot shows up, things begin to go awry with hilarious results, although a lot of the satire here is focused on the rid ridiculous technology itself. The sound design on this film is astounding, and much of the humor in the film grows out of it. It's a real treat. The other film was Playtime, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. I think we've recommended it on the show, which is also available for rent. But yeah, that's actually a great point. I hadn't thought about Jacques Tati's films as technophobia movies, but they absolutely are. They're, they're playful about it, but they always have that sort of like dark side of modern life is kind of absurd and crazy and, and very, very silly. So that's a great recommendation. I love his movies. That's an amazing box set, too. Uh, again, these are, used to make these movies on discs and put them in boxes and you could buy them <laughs> in stores. It was a whole different time back then. Uh, but yes, thank you, Christopher, for that lovely recommendation of Mon Uncle, available on iTunes. Okay, and one from your My List. You gave me number 100, which is, this is a fine film. It is called The Octagon, and it stars Chuck Norris. <laughs> and the description of it reads, Terrorist Ninjas. Allison, they're not terrorists. They're not ninjas. They're terrorist ninjas, or as I call them, 
terroringes, uh, <laughs> that have been wreaking havoc on a wealthy woman named Justine. Not Justine! <laughs> so she hires former karate champion Scott James to be your bodyguard, as you do. Uh, dear, uh, dear former karate champion, I'm being hounded by terrorist ninjas. Will you be my bodyguard? Allison, I actually watched 52 minutes of this movie one time, <laughs> and apparently it wasn't good enough to finish, but it was good enough to keep on my my list because you never know. Someday every other movie in the history of the world may get erased, and this might be the only one left. And when that day comes, I want a quick link to it just in case I want to finish it. So, yeah, that's the octagon. Very, very highly recommended on uh, Netflix. Allison, are you ready to uh, give us your countdown here? I'm ready. All right. Well, let's start with three new titles on streaming. Okay. First up, new to Netflix is Brick Mansions, um, because you know how I feel about parkour. Yes. I think it's You're hilarious. a practitioner of it. I'm a practitioner. I'm an expert, a yes. master of parkour. I find it hilarious. Yes. Um, it's a remake of District B13, which is a 2004 French film featuring parkour and mm. starring parkour founder or at least pioneer david bell and star of the original film exactly well so that was the 2004 french film was set in a dystopian paris in which the most dangerous ben leo had been sealed up um the remake is set in dystopian detroit in 2018 stars david bell in the same role basically speaking english uh stars the late paul walker this was actually what i think the last role he completed and stars the rizza um because why not he was actually at the screening I saw this at. He explained what parkour was. Um, mainly, this I mean, this movie is... The first movie was not a stone-cold classic by any no. means. But That's not how I, I remember it. What I find really interesting about this movie is that to watch them side by side is to understand how like much editing and even like mm. it, how impatient editing and kind of shots yeah. have been. Like it cuts up shots, especially like the opening parkour sequence. The whole point of parkour is to see to people show, do things. I know. Crazy and it's things. so fascinating to watch like this filmmaker use like 18 shots where in to the original. To show him jumping like over one. a one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I watched a little, when this got added to Netflix, I watched not 52 minutes, but I watched like 20 minutes before I went to sleep one night last week. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is missing the point. Right. Also, Paul Walker certainly had his talents as an actor cannot do parkour and does not do parkour in the movie which means that no he, he he does drive okay anyway so that's brick mansions it's on netflix you're giving I, it your I'm highest possible you, recommendation I give it my highest possible recommendation it's the octagon of american remakes of parkour french movies yes um so second new to netflix as well is i will follow which is the first scripted film from ava duvernay who was recently snubbed by the Oscars in terms of a best director yeah. nod. I was pretty upset. I was pretty bummed about that. Yeah. I was shocked. Yeah. Uh, and this is, you know, uh, Ava DuVernay had a long career before. She worked as a publicist, actually. Yeah. Um, this is her was her first scripted film, a 2010 indie about an artist who took leave from work to care for her ill aunt and who after that aunt dies, uh, kind of reflects back on their relationship and on her own life. So uh, like others of DuVernay's films, this took a while. She had to kind of fight to get this available digitally. So um, it's one to check out if you liked Selma, which I liked a lot, that, um, to kind of see some of her earlier work. And finally, new to, to Amazon Prime is The Rover, the latest film from David Michaud, uh, Australian filmmaker whose last film, her, his first film, Animal Kingdom, I enjoyed a lot 
I do not like the Rover nearly as much, but it's got some really great stylistic touches. It is another dystopian film, not about a, a neighborhood that has been sealed up with parkour. This is uh, it's set in the outback, the Australian outback, as civilization is crumbling. <laughs> oh, mate, I want to do parkour, but there's no buildings out here. <laughs> exactly. So instead, they have to drive cars around <laughs> okay. in very athletic ways. Stars Guy Pierce and a surprisingly good Robert Pattinson as a kind of um it was like mentally slow i would say they've got a bit of a like of mice and men relationship going on okay guy who who gets kind of taken hostage by guy pierce who just wants to get his stolen car back um so that's the rover it's available on amazon prime all right how about two listener recommendations uh first up is a film that you've actually just mentioned recently um it's recommended to us by benj or maybe that's Benji, Benji, written in a very stylized way. Just Benj. Let's go with Benj. Yeah, it's a cool name. Benj. All right. uh, he writes, I want to suggest on Netflix The Queen of Versailles, a ah, 2012 yes. doc that I find myself returning to several times a year. Great portrait of wealth, decadence, and happiness. It's nope. also rated PG, which is always fun. Interesting. Yeah, and that could be a topic for a show. Modern PG-rated films for adults. That's a great That's a great <laughs> that topic, is. actually. We should do that sometime. Yeah, it's yeah. also a documentary where the subjects hated the documentary, yes, fought against to, it, tried to get it. it kiboshed, but they were unsuccessful in that case. And they the movie were. came out and was very widely released and acclaimed. And, and yeah, it's an really awesome. seemed to like capture a moment in time. Oh, did it? Boy, Just did it so ever. Profoundly. Yeah, that is a really good doc. Yeah, that is a good one so thank you benj uh, that's a great recommendation and vanessa recommends rhymes for young ghouls which is also available on netflix instant uh, she writes if winter's bone was the breakout that made jennifer lawrence a star this movie should make as big a star of its young lead Devray jacobs the film follows a small community of micmac indians in canada and the systematic abuses they are subjected to by the local government and the arbitrary rules they are forced to follow to avoid having the community's children taken away by the local catholic school it's a movie about oppression that never feels oppressive to watch even with the toughest scenes the movie maintains a feeling of irrepressible fierceness and joy um that's a movie that i was not on my radar at all and i it, i'm really intrigued i added it to my my list so thank you vanessa Okay, and one random film from your my list. You gave me number 14, which is a recent release that is new to Netflix. It's Memphis, which was this 2013 film directed by Tim Sutton. Got a very small release in 2014. And as I remember, it was mostly kind of pegged around the fact that it stars this real-life blues singer, Willis Earl Beale, as a blues singer kind of drifting through Mm. Memphis, as the title promises. And that it's supposed to be this kind of, I don't know, like dreamy, um, very kind of sensory, arty, I guess is, is understood here, film. I, but it got a lot of acclaim. So I, I believe it was a, a popular one at uh, Film Spotting Original Recipe as ah, well. So that's I think there good are some fans well. over there on our sister show. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, on my my list. And All right. hopefully I'll get to it. Okay, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next show now. It's a very intriguing bunch here. Three very, very intriguing films to choose from. Uh, the first one is available on Vimeo On Demand. It's a rental title, although actually you could purchase it as well. It's, I think, available both ways, to purchase or to rent on Vimeo.com. And is a film entitled The Sweet Blood of Jesus. And if that sounds familiar, that is because that is the new film from Spike Lee. This is the film that he famously kickstarted on Kickstarter. He raised $1.4 million for this movie, which 
is apparently actually a, a loose sort of remake of Ganja and Hess, a yeah. famous indie kind of a, a vampire movie of the 1970s. He, I feel like Spike Lee had been like, this is not black. He repeatedly not insisted Blackula. it is not. Well, he kept saying it wasn't a vampire movie. Uh, but it was about the thirst for blood and things like that. But then it turned out to be Ganja and Hess, Ganja and Hess which, which is, is kind a of a vampire, vampire movie. movie. I mean, it's an atypical vampire movie. It's an unusual one, but I mean, that's that's sort of what it is. But anyway, uh, fascinating that after all that, I think the movie is getting a, a theatrical release, I believe, next month, in I want to say. Yeah. yeah, in February. But it is available right now on Vimeo. You can rent it at home. You could, well, you could buy it. You can own it forever right now. And we thought... We we like Spike Lee, and we are always interested in what he's up to, and I think this is a notable title, so I think this would be a good one to discuss, and we haven't done our research again, but if there are Spike Lee films available on Netflix this time, uh, that could be a good uh, subject, but there's a lot of uh, subjects we could talk about. We could talk about vampires, we could... Subversive vampires? Subversive, yeah, or yeah, or genre, deconstructive genre movies. There's all kinds of things we could do with The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which you can get now on Vimeo. All right, our second pick is available right now on Netflix, a recent edition. It is Wetlands, which is, I think, kind of already notorious, um, gross-out film. I don't film. think I can watch this movie, Allison. I gotta uh, be honest. About eighteen-year-old Helen, uh, who no, I can't, I can't do it. Who has interesting standards of bodily hygiene? No, I, I can't do it. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I have yet to see this movie, actually. I've heard many great things about it and many disturbing or disgusting things about it. Uh, but I am very intrigued, as always, by the idea of a female-centric gross-out comedy. It is a genre that women do not manage to participate in much because I feel like, like, like dirty comedies, you know, like R-rated comedies and raunchy comedies, it's one that's been such a boys, kind of like a boys club for so long that yeah. I feel like movies have had to invent ways for women to kind of to participate. And even if this is totally disgusting, I would like to see it. I, I, I would like to talk about that. You would like to make me uncomfortable. I, I think. would love to make you really uncomfortable. Yeah. Let me just say the gross out comedy as a male dominated space that deserves more female driven movies. hundred percent agree. I would love to see that. And I've heard great things about this movie, too. But I've also heard uh, the stuff about the bodily hygiene. I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. I am so I'm a little looking bit, forward I'm to going I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that sort of stuff. And I just, you know, if... Body if, hygiene. If, female body hygiene. If, if listeners want to... It's not the female thing. It's really just more like... Oh, no. But I mean, I feel like this is very specifically about female bodily hygiene. Yeah. All right. Well... I could see you wincing already. I'm not wincing. Uh -huh. I'm just, I just. You're flinching. I'm, I'm more bracing. It's like a, a full I'm bracing. body flinch. I'm not wincing. It's a brace. What's not our a next wince. pick? Our next pick, our final pick, is also available on Netflix. As far as I know, there's no disgusting body comedy, but who knows? Maybe there is. It's called, we think it's called, what do we think it's, how do we think it's pronounced? Automata? Automata. I keep saying it wrong. It's probably Automata. Directed by Gabe Ibanez. The description from Netflix here is this futuristic thriller stars Antonio Banderas as Jacques Vacan. That is an awesome name. An insurance investigator for a robotics company. While looking into a case involving a robot malfunction, he uncovers a massive threat to all of humanity. This was a little thriller that came out last year. I actually got some decent reviews. I, I'm kind of a nerd for robots. I'm not an expert on it, but I, when I was a kid, one of my favorite book series was the Isaac Asimov robot books he had a series of detective stories about it was like a human and a robot partner 
I love those books. They made iRobot is one of them. Yes. They made that into a terrible Will not terrible, but not great Will Smith movie. The books are fantastic. And I I, I kind of like movies about about robots, about artificial intelligence, all that kind of stuff. One of the one of the areas that fascinates me. And so that was I was sort of pushing for this one to be on there as well. So that's our third option. Say it for me again. I literally can't pronounce this title. Also. Automata? Automata. I don't know why. I have a mental block. I can't say it. Automata. And that's streaming on Netflix. All right. Well, it's an interesting bunch of three movies. Yeah. I still kind of want to see if gross out body humor is to you what body horror is to me, because I think that would be funny. But <laughs> it's up to you, our audience. Which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or even easier, enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, January 26th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will be on Tuesday, February 3rd. FilmspottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick, but in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer, and you can follow the show at FilmspottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. Allison has actually been very diligently just sharing lots of suggestions over there lately, not just the ones from other listeners. You've been, been it's been, I, I actually get useful information from it <laughs> uh, following it. So I encourage you to definitely follow uh, Film Spotting SVU. And, and hey, we haven't mentioned this in an episode or two. If you enjoy the show, why not leave us a review or a rating on iTunes? Give us five stars. Give us a positive review. It really helps us reach new listeners, supposedly. I don't even know how it does, but that's what I hear other people saying. Through iTunes magic. Yes, through the magic of iTunes. Let me explain it. Black Hat hackers named Hathaway, like the guy in Black Hat, they look at this data and then they fish uh, iTunes. They yes. send them emails. Well, what they do is they just type some incomprehensible code in yes. the command line. And then, and then, and then our podcast. cameras yeah. swoop inside computers and then inside them little blue dots turn into little white dots. Yes. And then our podcast becomes number one on iTunes. But the soy futures market gets destroyed. Yeah. But that's a small price to pay for us to worth dominate it. the podcast space. Absolutely worth it. So please leave us a review. We would appreciate it. Leave us a rating. It helps immensely, I guess, I think. Maybe. I don't know. But in any event, for Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks.